Onassis Foundation. Welcome to The Quarantine Tapes, a daily podcast from Onassis LA and DubLab. Hosted by Paul Holdengraber, this series chronicles shifting paradigms in the era of social distancing. Hello, Hello, could I please speak with Suzanne Chani? Yes, speaking. Is this Paul? It is Paul. Suzanne, it's such a pleasure to have you on this call. Thank you so much for being part of the Quarantine Tapes, which is co-presented by Onassis LA and DubLab. I'm really glad you could take the time to speak to me. Tell me, where, where do I find you and how, how have you been living these past 20 delirious months? <laughs> in a timeless space. But I, I landed in a kind of a nice environment. You know, I'm on the ocean. Which you, lo- which you of, love, which you love, the ocean and the sea. Exactly. I breathe with it. I sleep with it. You know, I, it's my uh, preferred background noise. And uh, so I'm here north of San Francisco, and today it's raining, and it's quiet and dark, and just one of those doldrumy days. Yeah. And, and you like the rain? I do love the rain, but, you know, the the anomaly for me is that I live on a cliff. And I've lived on this cliff for 30 years. But I'm always feeling a little bit vulnerable because the cliff erodes. And when it rains, you know, it means that the cliff is disappearing. You know, we've had two years of drought, and that kind of fortified my sense of stability. And now I'm back in the feeling of vulnerability so so that's where i am suzanne it's it's really interesting to me that among the very first things you should tell me and talk to me about is a notion of vulnerability it seems to me that the notion of vulnerability and what is fragile particularly as it pertains to machines has always been at the center of your work a fear a fear that they might break down a fear that they might be fragile a fear that they might be vulnerable and it reminded me of a dutch poet um, who was a poet of the cobra movement lucebert who said it's difficult to translate from the Dutch, but it goes something like this. He said, all things of value are vulnerable. Another way of translating it might be, all that is valuable is vulnerable. And I'm wondering how that resonates with you, both on your cliff and speaking from the experience of such an extraordinary extraordinary career. I've been lucky this comeback period. You know, five years ago, I started performing again with the Bukla. And the first time around, which was over 40 years ago, I did have a very traumatic experience when the machine broke and couldn't be repaired. So I wasn't anxious, really, to go back to that uh, paradigm, that that possibility. But um, I... Bukla himself really kind of launched me in this new period. And I thought to myself, you know, this time around, I'm not going to be afraid. If it, if it breaks, I, I don't play. It's that simple. 
there's nothing to worry about. It either works or it doesn't. And that's the way I've approached it. So I've been lucky. And I sometimes think that Don Buchla, who passed away several years ago, is up there, you know, protecting me and uh, keeping the instrument alive through the, you know, traversings of the globe that I've done and going through baggage claim and various, you know, handlers that have no respect for fragile stickers. Um, but it's working. And I think that fearless, that sense of like not being able to um, triumph over something that might happen is in a way a very peaceful way to be. But it just means that you have to forgive me, audience, if my instrument didn't make it. Are you playing for Don Buchler? And maybe you might say something about him for our listeners. The relationship you had with him is both so tumultuous and so extraordinary. Don uh, really changed my life. When I was a graduate student at University of California in Berkeley, I met Don. And it's true, we had a very tumultuous, not very uh, agreeable connection. Uh, but I fell in love with the possibility of making my musical life with this machine uh, because I was a composer and I was a female composer. And instinctively, I knew that this machine could give me independence. And I was also proselytized by Don because at the moment that I met him, he had evolved his vision to include a performance instrument. So up until that time, electronic instruments were seen as things that could make interesting noises or, uh, you know, could be used for recording. Uh, but I took on the mantle of live performance right from the start, not knowing that it was almost impossible to do. Uh, but I did it. And here I am years later, Uh, Don has passed away, and there's been a renaissance of interest in this new upcoming generation, you know, where they have uh, looked backwards and, and appreciated analog as opposed to digital. And the beauty of analog in these instruments is that it really is interactive, hands-on, in the moment. So it's not digital, it's not pushing go in a computer, it's not pre-recorded. You're actually in the moment with the sound creating the sound. And it's immersive and spatial and all the wonderful things that Don Buchla gave the tools for. To this day, there's nobody who has designed a proper spatial interface. And so I'm out, you know, tracing around and showing the kids how we did it in the 60s and 70s in hope that the legacy of, uh, you know, this person whom I call the Leonardo da Vinci of electronic music instrument design, that his legacy will take root and spawn, you know, the, the uh, generation of live performers that we did not get the first time around. Suzanne, you said independence that it gave you a sense of independence. Independence from what? <laughs> independence from, from the structure of the music industry that really didn't 
have space for me. Uh, in some ways, it opens doors because, uh, you know, as a female composer in those days, nobody was looking for a woman composer. And it was always controversial. You know, I was told that I had no place on the podium. You know, I, I shouldn't be conducting. You know, it was really the dark ages in the late 60s. It was one of the, the historic moments of women's liberation, and for good reason, because we needed it, as we always do. But it was a peak moment in li women's liberation in the late 60s. We were burning bras and trying to get, you know, our rights. Uh, but um, musically, the business of music and the, you know, if I listen, as a composer, if I listen to the classical radio station, I never heard a female composer. There were no role models. There was, there was nothing that gave permission or possibility to a woman to compose. To this day, I have recorded, you know, and written orchestral music, but I still haven't performed it except for a handful of times in Europe. So, you know, the opportunities, I, I did score a movie. Uh, I was the first, one of the first women to score a Hollywood feature. And no woman was, uh, was hired for another 14 years after I had that opportunity. So this is a reality that the opportunities were small. Now, on the other hand, when I went out into the world as an electronic musician, I had a lot of doors closed also because I would go to the record label with my bukla and they'd say, well, wait a minute, why don't you sing? Why don't you play the guitar? You know, so those doors were closed. Uh, but I was able to make a very good living in advertising, doing sound design. And I, I was able to actually... Uh, independently produced my first recording and pay for them as if I were a record label. I mean, you never were shy um, uh, from all these refusals. You, you would open the door or you would force yourself into a door. And I'm thinking particularly of that really magnificent story about how you got around to giving us the immortal sound of a Coca-Cola bottle opening. Yes. <laughs> can you yes, can you can you tell that yeah. story? I mean, it's it, there's a kind of stubbornness um, in in the sense that you you knew what you wanted and you knew how to get it, and you never took no for an answer. I was also very driven. I was in New York City. I had arrived there to do an electronic music concert. I fell in love with New York. And I decided to live there, and I had no money. So I had a lot of incentive, starvation. I, I think, uh, uh, you know, this is a well-known incentive, just uh, that, you know, the need for success if it's life and death really does inspire. Uh, so I really needed to make money. First, I needed to make it just to survive. Then I needed it to make my album. And that, that uh, being driven by an outside um, desire, really, is what gave me the strength to go forward. Uh, so with the Coca-Cola sound, you know, I was assiduously knocking on doors. I had come to New York. 
I found a book with all the advertising agencies listed listed in it. And I decided to start at the top. So I picked the top 20 agencies and I started cold calling them. And I was very determined. What would you say? Uh, what, would would you, always, what would you say to them? I would say, hello, uh, this is Suzanne Chani. And I would like to meet with your music supervisor because I'm a composer and I make electronic sounds. And I've done work in advertising. I had done work in advertising on the West Coast. And I'd like to send you my demo tape. And I'd like to meet with your music director. And they would always say, uh, call back in two weeks. And so I would always call back in two weeks. And sometimes this would go on for months and a year. But I never, ever stopped. And sometimes, as in the case of the music director at McCann Erickson, I actually did get an appointment. So I would march up to the agency waiting for my meeting with the music director and he wouldn't show up. And then I would go back to calling and then I would get another meeting and I showed up and he wasn't there. And the third time that this happened, I said, where is he? He has an appointment with me. And the secretary said, well, he's in the studio. I said, where is the studio? And she gave me the address of the studio in Times Square. And I went marching over to Times Square. I went up into the studio. I said, where is Billy Davis? They said, he's in the studio and you can't disturb him. I looked at the studio door. I opened it and I went in. And I said, Billy Davis has an appointment with me. And this guy looked at me, and he was just totally amused. Like, who are you, and what are you doing in here? It was it was really funny. And they were happened to be working on a campaign for Coca Cola, and they had this blank spot in the recording of the music. It was a radio spot. He said, "What do you do?" And I said, "I make sound." And he said, "Oh, well, can you do something in here in this?" space. And I always, my answer was always yes. Even if I didn't know how to do something, I knew that, you know, the answer was yes, yes. And he said, well, what do you need? I said, I need my bukla. He said, what is that? I said, well, that's my instrument. He said, well, go get it. So I went and got it. I had a cartage company that would kind of follow me around. And, uh, you know, in New York, everything was very automated. You know, you had radio registry for hiring musicians and Doopy's delivery for getting your, your gear uh, trucked around. And so Doopy's brought the machine. I set it up, and that was that. You know, I made the sound. There's more to the story, but it gets a little bit specific and complicated. Uh, but the essence of it is that I made a sound that could be used in uh, hundreds of commercials because it's because it was generic in a way it didn't have a pitch center it was the pop and pour it was bubbles and fizz and the sound of the can opening it's an extraordinary story i mean it's an extraordinary story on so many levels um really of 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 resilience and ambition and knowing that giving up just won't do on on the quarantine tapes i had the the great pleasure really of speaking with morton subotnik and um 
in in preparing myself to speak with you, Suzanne, I I read this wonderful interview you and conversation you had with with Morton, um, where you where you spoke again about your relationship with machines. And if you don't mind, I'll I'll read it back to you and perhaps help you will help us unpack it a bit further. There's one word in particular which appeals to me greatly, as you might imagine which is a word mm -hmm. conversation, where you say a machine is alive. It talks to you. It's so responsive. You do something, it does something back. It's a conversation. It's an interaction. Machines are wonderful, especially when they have a certain dependability. We were sp speaking a bit earlier about vulnerability, and you can trust them, and they have that other side, which is that they might just not work at all. And what struck me before you say anything is that you talk about machines in a way one could talk about human beings. Yes, this is true. And um, I, you know, I, I'm sure race car drivers feel the same way. You know, they love their machines. Um, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, when I when I went to New York, I, I did feel that there was, might be something wrong with me, that I was in love with a machine. And uh, I, I went to the, one of these, um, you know, they were popular at the time. There was this thing that Werner Erhard did called the S training. And these, these were these consciousness, you know, expanding seminars that then took off and spawned many versions. And uh, I had been invited to do one of these. And, you know, at the end of the whole experience, it was two weekends, the denouement of the whole training was that human beings have operating systems and they, ha they, they are in a essence machines and that we just don't understand how they operate. And if we were better at it, we would have better relationships. And so I realized at that moment uh, that I was okay, that I was, you know, that my relationship with a, with a machine, the same way all human relationships had that uh, that machine operating system under pinning. Do you know what I'm talking about? I do, and, <laughs> and, and I'm particularly interested in it, given that our relationship now to, to machines is, I mean, really... Um, ubiquitous in the i mean ubiquitous perhaps captures it we are we are we are driven we might say we are addicted to machines and i wonder if in some way that is a source of worry or you just feel that it's a natural development well i can tell you that i see so many people you know my sister one she has hearing aids and our hearing aids are, you know, attached to her iPhone. And, you know, her life, her hearing, her social interactions kind of depend on her relationship with that iPhone. And she has no relationship with it, no proper, you know, it's not intuitive. It's not dependable. It, it's really frustrating. And I see her suffer all the time mm. with that. And I think the difference for me is that the machine, you know, when I grew up on this machine, it was an analog machine. Mm. Analog is different from digital. Analog really is, you know, hands-on knobs and dials. 
sliders, connections that you can touch, that you, you can understand. Digital is menus, layers, and not intuitive. I think it, it has to do with the design. It's not that it can't be designed that way. But the aspect of digital that allows so many layers of interaction is, you know, is the downfall of the relationship. Uh, I, I don't think humans are even that complicated. You know, if you have a relationship with a human, <laughs> really, well, I, I think you, I, th- I think you, I think you're alone there. <laughs> well, maybe because I don't have many human relationships. <laughs> perhaps, <laughs> perhaps. But I'm happy to hear that you think it isn't complicated. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, maybe they are, but um, whatever. I mean, there are ways of navigating, right? I guess I don't know. You know, an, an, another aspect of, of 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 your your past that interests me so much is how much the avant-garde, so to speak, of that period, whether it's Steve Reich or Philip Glass. I've had occasion to to speak with Philip Glass, not with Steve Reich yet. They 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 didn't recognize you, and you you have this this wonderful analogy in one of your conversations where you talk about the fact that when Columbus came over to this country, uh, people didn't quite know what was coming towards them. And I'm I'm curious about that disconnect between two individuals who, if ever there were two composers who should have known what you were up to, it would have been them. Well, in fact, those two composers had uh, quite a different uh, relationship with me. Philip Glass, um, you know, when I came to New York and I had no place to live, I actually slept on the floor of his studio, basement recording on Green Street. And I had my bukla there. And he, you know, he looked interested. And I said, Philip, this is perfect for your music because your music is mechanistic. You're making patterns that repeat. And this machine loves to do that. And so he said, okay, well, let's give me lessons. And we structured a very uh, disciplined, uh, you know, course. And he would show up studiously and I would explain the, you know, mechanics of the machine to him. And the bottom line was that he just couldn't get it. It's not that he didn't try. It's not that it might not have been something that would, you know, expand his vocabulary, but he just, it wasn't for him. And I realized that these things are not necessarily natural to every every human. Steve Reich, on the other hand, thought that these machines were, should be, as he said, sent to the moon. They were just evil. They had no right to exist. They, you know, and it was very funny because You know, I love being older and to look at the evolution of these things over a lifetime, my long lifetime. And, uh, you know, his son now, Ezra, is an electronic musician. And I think this is just perfect poetic justice. And I think that he also, although I haven't followed him that closely, but I think he does now embrace somewhat electronic music production. 
maybe not on the level of um, analog, but um, you know, it is part of his uh, his world now. So I think that period, which was in 1974, 1975, was a his particular historic moment. Uh, but it, it did define, it did tell you what it was like, you know, how um, how really ununderstood this medium was in those days. I, there was no, yeah. I love I love what you said about getting older mm-hmm. and about loving getting older because then you can look mm-hmm. back and earlier in our conversation today you spoke about this younger generation that is maybe understanding embracing returning but not returning for them of course discovering for them those wonderful mid-70s you were speaking about and I'm wondering yeah, how, how, and, how that yeah. how that plays for you, and um, you know how that plays for you, and how how do you try at the same time to to remain contemporary? Well, you know, it's a dream come true for me. I can't. Believe, I feel as if I've awakened from a from a dream. You know, and and here it is. I mean, it's it's impossible what has happened because technology as we experienced it always with this force that always went forward. That was how they marketed it. That was how it, it justified itself, you know, that we were going forward with technology. And the kids all of a sudden put the brakes on. This was not the way of technology to go backwards. They said, I want vinyl. I want cassette. I want analog. And how did this happen? How did they get the message that it wasn't really uh, valid to buy into that that role of technology as being this inevitable, you know, evolutionary force, you know? And so they went backwards. And the truth is we didn't ever uh, finish what we were doing back then. It didn't go to fruition. It didn't happen. So now it is happening. And I'm, you know, for me... I'm thrilled. I, I mean, the kids are playing analog music. They're buying neuro racks. They're assembling their modules. They're, you know, they're just totally uh, into this. And when I perform for the first time in my life, I can play into a listening that knows what I'm doing. And that, to me, is like pure joy that I now have uh an understanding out there of what I'm doing and an energy system of communication with them while I play. So, so this begs a question for me of what you're learning from them. Ah, what I'm learning from them. Well, uh, you know, I do see myself really as, as somebody who's, uh, you know, I, I have, I've always had kind of a teaching role in this department. Because even in the early days, uh, I had to have a lot of patience because, you know, in the early days, nobody even knew where the sound was coming from or what it was, you know. And so I had to be very patient and explain in the hope that it would kind of bring a comfort zone, you know, and a familiarity to people. And now I still do that. You know, after a concert, um, I... 
I invite them. I want them to see the machine that I play because it's exceptional. Uh, a lot of the design, I follow the design of Eurorack systems, and they are uh, moving forward beautifully. But there are still a lot of missing links. You know, the spatial control is not there. The uh, the multiple arbitrary function generator is not there. You know, certain things that give you uh, hierarchical control over your materials. And so I still see myself in a teaching role. But what they teach me, I you know what? Some of the things I learned for them from them is that in ways nothing has changed. You know, I I relate to a lot of young women now, and certainly young men as well. But I'm particularly interested in the women that I meet because I I empathize, you know, with their struggles and their uh, desire to be seen and heard and not be invisible and and build their confidence, especially in technology. And, you know, I think things are changing now, but they haven't yet arrived. You know, I was teaching at Berkeley College of Music, and there would be one female in the class and 12 men. Every technology class was like that. That was the uh, proportion. And one day I'm sitting in the faculty room. There were 15, 16, you know, teachers around a table. I was the only woman in the room. And they're asking, what can we do to promote, you know, women in technology? What can we do? I said, look at this room. (laughs) You are that proportion. You, You have created that proportion. You need to hire women. You need visible women in roles of uh, authority here. And so, you know, that has happened now. They have, uh, you know, they made an effort. It didn't just, it doesn't just happen. You have to have awareness first, and then you have to embrace the change that you want to make. And then when you do that, it changes. Suzanne, in, in closing, sadly, I, I, I'd like you to help me understand the, I think, incredibly important dis- distinction you make between sound effect and musical effects. You, you speak about mm-hmm. sound effects as really, it would be like looking at reality, but you were not really interested in looking at reality in the way that people who do sound effects do. But you were interested in musical effects. And what 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 is this distinction and how does it work for you now as you think about the distinction you drew? Well, it's a very simple uh, distinction, really, because in electronic music or computer music, you have access to and control of all the parameters of a sound. So what are those parameters? You can control the pitch. You can control the volume and the shape of the volume. You can control the rhythm. You can control uh, the, the, the timbre of it. And so if, for instance, you, are, you want the sound of a basketball, maybe it's a commercial about a, an athletic shoe and the person is playing basketball. 
you can record a basketball, but I can take and make the sound of a basketball and I can integrate it musically. I can control the rhythm, the pitch, the timbre, the movement, the space, you know, all of the musical parameters and integrate those, those sounds into a musical uh, score or composition. Uh, so the other thing is, I, I would always say it was like the platonic ideal of a sound because the real sound just never translated, you know, it just never sounded uh, dynamic enough. You know, if you made a potato chip, I, I, the example I use is a potato chip. It's about, I once had to make the sound of a potato chip. And I, you know, I made this sound and I had, you know, I, I had so many layers on it. I had this you know, multiple layers of the crunch. I had the salt flying in the air. I had, you know, you can surgically, when computers came in, you could also very surgically uh, design sounds. And, and so that's what I call musical effects, and that is what became sound design. And, and you speak about the, the poetry of sound, and I'm not surprised in in hearing you talk about it, that you, you would. I, I, I was really imagining that potato chip right now. It was right there in front of me. Right. Every sound, every idea has a sound. Even if, you know, my, my first recording was called Voices yes. of Packaged Souls that I did with a sculptor, Harold Paris. And it was the sound of... The sound of heat, the sound of cold, the sound of an old man loving, the sound of a, a nose peeling, the sound of uh, an open window. The sound, you know, all these things you think, oh, of course, of course there's a sound, even though you can't hear it in the real world. It's absolutely there. Suzanne, what a pleasure it's been speaking with you. I can't tell you. It really, I'm really delighted. And I, I want to thank you for this moment. It's been a pleasure to, 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 to discover your work, to journey with you. Thank you so much. And I wish you all the very best. And I hope that soon when the world goes back to what passes for normal, hopefully with a difference, you'll be able to play to a live audience easily and I'll be able to come and hear you. Oh, that would be wonderful. So we'll do that. We'll do it safely. We will. Paul, I've loved speaking with you. I love your voice, by the way. You have a very distinctive and special voice. Well, thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you. All the very best okay. to you. Bye. Thank you, Paul. Bye-bye. Okay, take care. Bye.
to support this show and Dublab's progressive programming, go to dublab.com/support.